will. I don't know if you've ever gotten caught up in these videos, but I typically, as a person, don't really watch Christian videos. Uh, but I was like, I'm going to do it because I kind of want to see what's out there. And, uh, and the first click really matters, you know, because once you make the first click, the Internet's like, the Internet has no boundaries. The Internet's like that, that, <laughs> that crazy person you went out with on the first date and you just told him at dinner, I really love Led Zeppelin. And then like the next day, all of Zeppelin's albums had been mailed to you by this first time date that you had. Um, it's like easy, easy. That's kind of how the internet is. Uh, I'm going to click this video. And then I knew that the first click mattered because everything else after that would be uh, really similar. And what I ended up in was a world uh, of mastery, of mastering things, uh, videos about mastering how you read the Bible. Uh, I, there were videos just uh, like Bible porn. I mean, just like people showing, unboxing their Bibles and, and just, you know, and I'm sitting there with my $12 one that I bought that, by the way, is anglicized. I didn't know that. So every now and then there's European spellings in here. Um, but just let me unbox the Bible for you and show you all the different things on the pages and the leather and the gold and the names. Those were in there. Um, how you highlight your Bible, by the way, is a whole, sh- is a whole sub. I wasn't about to curse. Is a whole... Uh, <laughs> I'm not above it. I'm just saying I wasn't going to... Uh, it, it's a whole subculture of like how you highlight your Bible. And I have sort of rhythms in that too, so I was interested. But man, just, wow, just mastering how you highlight the Bible, mastering prayer and devotional routines. The, the routine thing became a whole separate lane that I ended up in. And there was videos about like um, the one girl was like, this is my routine for getting ready for church. So there I am watching someone put their makeup on <laughs> and thinking, what is happening? Like, what is happening? There were people showing you what's in their bags, what's in their church bags. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have a church bag. Does anybody have a church bag? One person. You all are lying. You have a church bag. My daughter has a church bag. Uh, and uh, everything, you know, what a church bag means for your kids is like, I can just leave my Bible in that bag, never have to read it. Um, but it really was weird to be watching a makeup tutorial and wondering how I ended up there. But it was a world about mastery, kind of a wellness culture vibe, if you will, like extracting variables of chaos from your life so that you can flourish in your faith. It's just very similar to what we hear in other places. Places mostly a desire for orderliness in your faith, the promise of, and this is the key word today, control. Say that word with me, control. The promise of control. This is not limited to Christian culture, by the way. I would actually argue that Christian culture has borrowed this from human nature. This idea of total control of your life and how that might be even possible. I was at the bookstore the other day. I don't know if you've heard of these places, these bookstores. Um, but I went to the bookstore, and um, 
my kids get mad at me because every time we drive past what is now um, the container store on North Peachtree Road up in Buckhead, used to be a Borders Books. Anybody? Had a coffee shop in it. I'd walk my kid down there every day and he'd do his homework. He probably doesn't remember that, but when he was young, we'd go down there because they had like a whole section where you could just sit. Every day I drive by there and I'm just like, really wish that bookstore was back here, but that's just, that's not in my notes. Okay. So I went into the bookstore and the book that I needed required me to sort of weave through what I would assume is the self-management section. And I just stopped and looked around. I mean, just the, the sheer volume of works about self-management, your finances, your marriage. Um, I was going to say your marriages, but that's sort of weird. Your marriage, your parenting, how to manage, how to master parenting, your career, happiness, your body. So many books on your body. And social media and has the same kind of like evangelistic tone uh, of just telling you how you should live in order to achieve optimal outcomes. And I'm guilty of it too. I'll open the highlight reel and just go five ways to, and I click it and run through the deck. And I'm like, I just feel used there for a moment, you know. But it has this evangelistic tone to it where it's trying to tell us how we order our life for optimal outcomes. And when we enter our story today that Tana just read for us, what we, what we find is Jesus surrounded by uh, the illusion of control on one hand, and on the other, the realities of how hard life can actually be. Uh, this is what we find when we get into um, the story. If you have your Bible uh, and you were following along, or I think it's on the back of your bulletin as well, but I just want to point out a couple of things here at the beginning uh, I would say there's probably two sections to this story, and the A section here is verses 17 through 19, and what we find is that Jesus um, is surrounded by a lot of needs. You, You can see it here in the text, with great crowds of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and all these other cities and places, they have come to hear him and to be healed of his of their diseases. So there's a real sense of need that's surrounding uh, Jesus. So Jesus, before we even get into what he said, he doesn't just show up and start talking. He has this history of a growing uh, influence and regard. He was at this very moment surrounded by uh, many different needs that I would say are quite immense, quite deep. People need healing. People need their life back. People are in trouble And Jesus is being pulled in so many different directions. And he arrives at this moment, before he says anything, as a known and verified healer and miracle worker. So certainly, he's going to draw a crowd of needs. And so naturally, there is lots of need around him. But Luke, in the very next verse, chooses his words carefully, but also theologically. It says, Then... He looked up at his disciples and said, Now, I want you just to sit with that image for a moment. He looked up at his disciples and said, Now, all of these blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are hungry, etc. Some of you are probably thinking, I've heard that somewhere before. 
You know, like when you see any Star Wars movie, you're like, I feel like I've seen this before. Um, Thank you. There is a version of this in Matthew's gospel, but Matthew's version begins a different way. Matthew begins with Jesus, Matthew says, opening his mouth. That the teaching that comes from Jesus in Matthew's version is about the word. But what flows uh, in this passage, it flows from Jesus, his eyes, his vision. He sees. There's this sense of great need around him, and he sees this. And he sees his disciples. And he opens his eyes. He looked up at his disciples. And then he begins to teach them and saying some things about who he's talking to. Now, what Jesus sees are two columns of people. On the left column, he sees the poor, the hungry, the sad, and the hated. And in the other column, he sees essentially the opposite. The rich, the full, the happy, and the adored. Now, if you had to choose which column you want to be in, it's quite easy But these are the two things that Jesus sees among the people who are there. The poor, the hungry, the sad, the hated on one side. And the the rich, the full, the happy, and adored on the other side. And when you look at these two columns of people, what you see are two contrasts. The contrast is between a loss of control and then a sense of control. A loss of control... Uh, the poor, the hungry, the sad, the hated, feeling completely out of control. And then this sense of control, the rich, the full, the happy, the adored. To both, Jesus speaks very particular words of grace, but also truth. He addresses what I would say are the assumptions in both columns. There's this tension between favor and punishment of blessing and curse. Now, the poor, the hungry, the sad, the hated, they rightly uh, begin to wonder if God even cares. If that's your situation, then that's that's a fair consideration. They begin to wonder if God even cares. And why wouldn't they? Things aren't going well. Things never go well. And in the society and the times in which Jesus is saying this, There's really no rising from that situation. The rich, on the other hand, the full, the happy, the adored, they can assume uh, that they are recipients of God's blessing because of their station in life. Now, I know that we have evolved out of that idea, right? If things are going well for me, then God must be happy with me. If things are going terribly for me, then God must be upset with me. We haven't evolved out of that, haven't we? No, we all find ourselves thinking, what have I done wrong? You know, what can I do better to make God bless me? So these are the two columns that Jesus is looking at. These are the things that he sees, the people that he sees. And these are the assumptions that live within these columns of people. God doesn't even care about me. He's forgotten about me, and I am blessed by God. And Jesus points to both and says that they are both mistaken assumptions. Jesus is not saying that one of these columns is better than the other. This is not a comparative suffering sort of thing. He's not saying that one is better than the other, but, it, that, but that both 
are out of sync in God's world. That both don't have a place in the world of God, in the kingdom of God, in the reign of God. That both are out of sync with that. The other thing I would mention to you, and this is what you came for, I'm sure, but Jesus is speaking in the second person plural. These words are handed not to an individual, but to the community. That what he's proposing here, what he's addressing is group work. That these things require the community uh, to work through. And I think about a church that's in balance, recognizing that both of these groups of people exist, both in our midst and in the world outside of these walls. I would also say to you that um, although in Luke's version versus Matthew's version, these are not spiritualized. In Matthew's version, blessed are the poor in spirit. You You know what I'm talking about? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus doesn't do that in this version. He just says, blessed are those who are poor, full stop. Blessed are those who are hungry, full stop. These are very physical and social. And so as a church, we recognize that these real situations exist, both in and outside of our church. And we are handed these words to be reminded that this is not okay in God's world. It's not okay to be in that situation. And that people must rise up to help, to be of assistance, to be a hand in those people's lives. But we also recognize that in our midst, there are the the rich, the full, the happy, and the adored. Those who are well-liked, those who have everything that they need. And what Jesus is saying to those people, which is pretty much all of us, we got here okay today, did we not? What Jesus is speaking to us in these words is be careful to think that you have arrived and be careful to think that things couldn't fall apart for you. Be careful to think that these people in this other group are so foreign from you. I don't know if you've ever worked with the homeless. I know many of you have, but and it isn't always the case that this happens, but inevitably it's just very interesting You end up talking to one of them for a long time and you're like, wait, so let me get this straight. You were an engineer? It's just the reality. We often think that we have things under control and then something happens. Somebody gets sick, somebody dies. There's a downturn in the economy. One paycheck that you miss can lead to a cycle of downwardness. And so we forget how close we are. And so Jesus hands these words to the people. He hands these words to you and to me to be a church that is in balance, recognizing that both of these are not great in God's world and that both must be worked with together. And I have found that when we work with those in need, those who are sad, those who uh, are hated, I find that when we spend time with these people, we, we begin to see the eyes of God in the eyes of these people. Amen? I believe that when we spend time with those who are less in control than us at the moment, 
It reminds us of the human family. Make no mistake, God is against and wants to eradicate all of these things in the category of the poor and the sad and the hungry and the hated. Uh, he wants to do that. And so we, we must find ways to do that as a congregation, as people. And so I would just say in closing that Jesus here is, and this is a tough teaching. It's even tougher to teach about the teaching. But, because I'm not even sure at this point what I've said to you. So just send me an email. Um, <laughs> but it's highlighted well, I just want to say. <laughs> Full circle back to opening story. Um, I want to close with uh, these words from N.T. Wright, where he says, a genuinely Christian ethic would ask, granted that God is going to create a new world and give us a newly embodied life in the future, what sort of life is appropriate in the present? These theological quotations like that are a dime a dozen. My favorite, of course, I believe it's Walter Brueggemann, that the church... uh, is in the practice of remembering the future. That's what we do. We do that in communion every week, actually. That we take the bread and the juice as a remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection, and we do this until he comes again. We, we claim a historical moment, but we look forward to a future 